1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast, production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: Hey, everybody. I have got Mr. Walt Goshert with us today. It's actually a very special day at the Power Producers Podcast because we have a Brand new baby in the mix. Mr. Kyle Hauk, my co-host, is out because his wife had their baby boy there first at three o'clock this morning. I know because I was awake. You would think it was my grandchild, but not so much. Baby and mom seem to be doing really well, and and I wish wish them well. But we have Mr. Walt Goshert with us today, and we are going to talk about a variety of things, but I think that a lot of agents out there can learn a lot from some of the proper techniques that you can use on LinkedIn. And I know that I can too. I probably, you know, like everything else just need to do more about what I know instead of winging it. But, um, Walt, glad to have you, man. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are, where you came from and how you got to where you're at.
2: Okay. Hey, great to be here. And, uh, congratulations to Kyle. That's, uh, that's great. Great news. So yeah, you always like to hear that kind of stuff. So cool. Uh, short short story uh i've been in the business insurance business for 40 years uh started my career with aetna uh before they were travelers on the commercial insurance side uh went to the brokerage side for 10 years uh built a book of business uh, and put together the first uh work comp safety group in colorado and uh that was through the state fund. It was a huge headache at the time, but uh, it actually worked. And uh, sold my book of business and joined uh, a CPA, registered investment advisor, friend of mine, and helped him to build his book of business. And for the last 20 years, I've been an independent marketing consultant, working mostly with B2B clients and most recently back to working with commercial insurance people.
1: Cool deal. So that's. Interesting that you you left insurance to get into marketing. I um it's funny because somebody I was talking with somebody on the phone today and, and I self-admittedly told them I'm I'm actually more of a marketer than I'm am an insurance agent. Um it, but it probably makes me dangerous because I'm pretty solid as an insurance <laughs> agent too. Um but you know, marketing's passion, right? It's something yeah, that yeah. I like to do. And insurance, I, I I like to help people, I like to do insurance, but you know my real my real passion is is the marketing piece and taking an idea that I have for something that's sort of off the wall or whatever and then turning it into into fruition. That's sort of been my mo my my whole life for that matter. So um, you know, but you're you're heavy. Talk talk a little bit about that. I mean, are you dealing with marketing outside of social stuff or are you primarily LinkedIn? Because you and I have originally connected on LinkedIn, and, and right. from what I can see that's a lot of what you do but i mean what's the what's the gamut
2: yeah the i i like to say i'm plat you know platform agnostic whatever works what whatever pieces uh, you know i think linkedin is a great opportunity i tend to focus on that and just to reflect on what you're saying uh yeah from uh, i've always been attracted to the marketing part of it uh when i got in the insurance business i found the insurance kind of easy to understand but I found it boring too. I was never really a big technician. I liked, just like you're saying, I, I, it, I like the creative process of taking someone that you just didn't know a stranger and turning them into someone that where they trusted you to be their advisor. I found that a fascinating process and I still find it fascinating how you build those relationships. And a lot of that is marketing. And I think, the whole prospecting piece of what we've done traditionally in insurance has evolved into more of a marketing type of discipline especially with all the online uh, opportunities that are out there uh, it used to be you could just you know pick up a list cold call people or go out and meet people where now i think you you really have to be more of a marketer to build relationships and have those opportunities so
1: yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think it's interesting because, you know, your, your point's well taken that you, you have to be a marketer to initiate and build those relationships. You also have to be a marketer, even though it doesn't seem like you're being a marketer, to create a raving fan once you have somebody in your book of business. Absolutely, You ob- obviously want to get referrals around that account or whatever else. And that's one of the things that we preach and we try and execute. in in my firm, is to create that awesome client experience from the second that they get the first video welcome from me, you know, welcome to the family, we're glad to have you, to the welcome kit that they get in the mail from us with um, branded things and all kinds of cool little swag that we give them, to the fact that we can execute on the basics. The problem is the basics aren't going to cut it for people anymore. Yeah. Know, the, basi- the basics are the status quo. That's what the expectation is.
2: Well, it's, it's that whole uh, commodity agent trap. And I know that's something that, I don't know if you're a fan of Scott Addis and what he's done, but he talks a lot about the, that commodity agent trap. Where and, and this is especially true when you look on LinkedIn. Every uh, 99% of the agents or producers out there, they look and sound the same. And so you need to be positioned differently to be able to break through that commodity agent trap and to break through all the noise that's happening online to grab people's attention so you have the opportunities to start to build a relationship and ultimately land them as a client.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I know Scott well, actually. Um, And you're right. And I, I say it differently than what Scott does. I Typically, tell people that I view the insurance transaction to, is is being a commoditized shuffling of paperwork. <laughs> that's, that's really what it is. Yeah, it is. Um, at the end of the day, it's a policy. It's a binder that sits behind your desk and collects dust. It's a certificate that gets you onto a job site. You know, does it have any intrinsic value? No, not really. Unless you have a claim and it needs to respond, then it's a value to you. Otherwise, people pay money in and out all year long and never get anything from it. And so it just becomes a cost of doing business in most decision makers' eyes. That's dangerous that we've created that environment because well, it removes yeah. value completely.
2: Yeah, the intrinsic value is is what insights and, and advice, recommendations – that that producer or the advisor, the agent, whatever label we want to put on the person, what are they adding of value to the transaction? You know, where they're we're really trying to position in the same level as that business's CPA, their attorney. Where they're you're really on that same level, where they're looking to you to make proactive decisions rather than just saying, "Geez, I bought a building, how much insurance do I need?" You know, where they're they're calling you at the time they're thinking about expanding operations or, or buying that new building and saying, hey, uh, David, how is this going to impact my insurance? And and how does imp- this impact part of my operations and other facets? You know, I like your insights, your take on this.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, truth be told, if you have the best relationship with them, they're going to call you before they ever start looking.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that's it, what it, you want.
1: You know, it's not going to be a situation where it's, Hey, you know, but unfortunately that is what we have trained our prospects and clients to think about. Right. I think that we, we've created that environment, you know, nobody else is to blame and, you know, agents by and large that, I mean, the, the example you gave is the same thing that you hear literally every single time that somebody talks about how an agent wants to be perceived we want to be perceived like the attorney or the accountant no. because those people seem to be respected, trusted advisors. What are we doing in our interactions and relationships with people to allow us to be perceived on that level? And if, in my opinion, not enough because too many people still don't view us that
2: way. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think, uh, you know, not to point fingers, but I think the carriers somewhat encourage it. And I think the clients become comfortable with it, you know, because they default to just comparing on a price basis instead of really valuing the insights, the recommendations, the advice that that producer can bring to the table. But I, I think you're right. I think it it starts with us as the producers. We have to be the ones that step up and initiate that relationship and create the value. And the And a lot of this is perception of value. That's marketing. You know, how do you perceive that a, that's a, there's a value there, that the client's going to put a value on it and and it makes a difference for their business?
1: Well, it's interesting because in Florida, you know, and I talk about this a lot. I don't think that I've necessarily talked about it on the podcast as much as I do when I, I speak in, uh, in groups. But, you know, it's automatically commoditized in the workers' comp market in Florida because it's state-administered pricing, right? There is no competitive advantage from one carrier to the next. Yes, somebody might be able to give you a better dividend. Somebody may be able to give you a better structured retro program or whatever else. But for all practical purposes, it's the same price. It's the same commodity. And a lot of agents, in my opinion, throw their hands up and just say, eh, comp's the comp. We're we're not even going to try and compete on this because – or we're not going to put as much effort into this because there's really nothing we can do to change the price. We're going to go focus on really driving down your auto rates. Well, here's a fun fact. How do you know that the auto isn't going to be just as bad as the comp? And the reason the comp's bad is because they had auto accidents. So you're focusing, when you focus on a price game instead of total cost of risk, you're doing a disservice to yourself and you're doing a disservice to your client. That's why when we deal with workers' comp, especially, you know, me personally, 100% 100% of the time, it's an experience modification analysis. I go in with the XMOD analysis, and we look at exactly what the root causes are. There's no way for me to um, to tell somebody how I'm going to give them a treatment plan for issues on their account until I've done a, a credible and thorough diagnosis. A lot of agents don't do that because they're not willing to stop talking long enough to listen, and they're not willing to go the extra mile to actually invest in learning and understanding something There will be a huge point of differentiation for them. They look at it at surface level and say, eh, comps to comp, the state tells us what it's going to be. I'm going to move on to the next thing. And that has made me a very um, relatively successful producer from that standpoint because I go where they don't.
2: Yeah, I think you know it's funny you you talk about comp the you know the comp the comp and we just compare it on price. But I think the comp is where you have the biggest opportunity to to make a difference in the advice, the insights, the recommendations that you can bring to the discussion. And you, it's usually the biggest price driver in a lot of the in a lot of the businesses, whether it's a construction firm, manufacturing firm, warehousing firm, you know. Uh, health services, you know, the comp drives that PNC premium, and there's a lot of things, you know, the price being the price, but their ultimate cost of what they're going to pay is based upon how well you recommend and how much you you actually help them to implement those safety procedures, the claims management procedures, you know, understanding and pulling apart their experience mod, it, all those things that go into that, it, and it kind of is surprising to me that more agents don't take advantage of that. I don't know if they're lazy or they just don't understand it. I I don't know because, you know, that's how I built my business too when I was a producer and it just seemed to me to make sense to do that. Uh to go in and and really advise the client on, hey, this is one of your biggest business expenses. You know, let's see how we can how we can make some inroads in what you're paying here and not just accept that the rate's the rate.
1: Yeah, understanding my peer group, what I would tell you is it's twofold. Number one, they don't want to have to do any more than they absolutely have to to get the deal done. So So that's laziness. Yeah, the sharpening of the saw and the unwillingness to learn something and push your comfort level and the boundaries to learn that is, is one thing. And the other thing is, the money right yeah. so even though the comp might be higher premium you yeah, make comp, less
2: commission on it. It,
1: it it's less commission and that's what they look at and so i'm a firm believer in i'd rather have a hundred percent of eight percent you know th- you know than a hundred percent of nothing <laughs> so well and, and we lead with the comp then we go take everything anyhow well you lead we with the comp
2: it, and you never write just the comp i you know i always you know was a Part of the deal is, hey, if I'm going to help you on your comp, I need everything on your business. I can't really advise you on just your comp alone when we're talking about your property, your liability, your autos, you know, everything. I, I need to work with you on everything.
1: Yeah, I agree. And when we work with somebody, we put together a service plan for them as far as what we're going to give them in terms of deliverables, right? So there's a lot of low hanging fruit. I could take a producer that is fresh out of insurance school, getting their license, and I can make them successful in workers comp production very, very quickly. One of the first things that I tell them to do is if you ever have the opportunity which it's rare that you're going to have it like if you go to do a marketing drop or whatever. But if you're in a meeting and that person has their loss runs because they have an issue, they say, here, take a look at these. What do you think? A lot of people are going to have a deer in the headlights look. They're not going to yeah. understand what they're looking at. It's like, holy cow. Uh. <laughs> and, and this is your chance, right? This is your chance to, sh- to shine. And I tell them all the time, move over to that indemnity column and look straight down the column. Yeah. What does What does that look like? And if you've got claims that are you know, two or $300 of indemnity, you need to question why, why did this happen? What kind of advice did you get? Who allowed that indemnity to be on this claim because of how it affects your experience mod, right? Mm -hmm. If that indemnity is not on there, you lose, you get the 70% reduction up to the split point, depending on what your state laws are. But the second you throw that indemnity on hundred percent of the claim value goes into the mod calculation And you screw yourself. And so I tell them all the time, if you look at that, you need to look for low dollar indemnity claims. Everybody's going to have a shock loss at some point, more than likely. But if you have the low dollar stuff, that's a 100% red flag that there is no light duty or return to work program in this organization. And then you ask that question. Well, it looks to me like you have a lot of low dollar indemnity claims. Talk to me a little bit about your return to work program. Everybody has one, right? They all all have return to work. (laughs) Just ask them, they're gonna tell you because I, I learned probably 10 years ago that when they say, Oh yeah, we have return to work, I just keep talking because I know they yeah. don't have it. Yeah. You know, and basically what I what I do is I say, well, tell me a little bit about your return to work. Oh yeah, we've had we have that under control. Oh, so to to help me understand a little bit better. You have gone and met with the treating facility and established a relationship with the treating physician to let them know that you are a return-to-work light-duty employer who values your people and wants to bring them back so that they're assimilated into the culture as quickly as possible. And you have positions that are dedicated to bring those people back as quickly as possible. And you have the information that comes back from the doctor that clearly shows you limitations and everything else. And you have a a procedure set up for how you take that information in, in your organization and process it. And you also have that letter that goes to the employee that offers them the light duty position and explains that it's incumbent on them to communicate what doctor appointments that doctor's appointments they have. You give them the wage that you're going to give them for the jobs that you're offering them. You name who their supervisor is. You tell them what their tentative schedule is going to be and you give them the opportunity to accept or reject that and you send that to them via email and US mail and give them a deadline to get it back to you. So you have that as well and then you've identified and I just go down the gamut because yeah. I know I know they don't have it.
2: Yeah. Right? No, if they, they had
1: if they had that those low dollar indemnity yeah. claims are nowhere on the map.
2: Well, it's usually a case of you know, they need to experience a big claim to get that grabs their attention first, where it really impacts their mod, then they get religion about having a return to work program. But if they haven't experienced that, or they think it was outside of their control, then they just let it slide is the problem. Uh, you know, because it, it takes some, it, it takes leadership within the business to do that. They, they have to they have to be very process oriented and have systems in their business. And then they have to be able to communicate that out to their staff. And that takes some leadership in the business.
1: But let's face it. We're talking about middle market accounts, right? Yeah. How how many middle market accounts? And when I define middle market, I look at my personal book of business. I focus on things between $25,000 and $50,000 in agency revenue. So right. if you're using 10%, quarter million to a half million dollars in premium, is what I look at. How many of those people actually have a dedicated resource internally for
2: risk management? They don't. They don't. It's 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 usually dumped on the CFO's plate and the guy's balancing a hundred and one different things. He's trying to get funding. He's trying to Balance the taxes and minimize the taxes within the business. You know, they're they're talking about accounting systems so they can monitor what's going on from a cash flow standpoint in the business. Usually the last thing on his plate is risk management. You know, it's agreed. Just, you know, that's just the way it is. That's that's the reality of how CFOs work in those middle market businesses.
1: Well, and the fact of the matter is, take that a step further okay, the last thing on his plate is risk management, but what is his view of risk management? What does that actually mean to him? That in the average middle market CFO's mind is insurance renewal. That's it. Like There is no proactive stuff going on. And so it's interesting because when we do the mod analysis, we use that to set the table because number one, I know that there's a 95% chance nobody else has ever done this for them. Uh, But number two, you know, we go in and we lay it out for them, right? So that when when we put that report together, we can show them by injury type, by body part injured, by cause of injury, by employee, how many mod points each one of those things uh, has attributed to it, and subsequently how much premium they're paying as a result of those things over one year and over the three-year mod period, just because they're on the mod. But the other thing that it does is if you do one of those analyses right, which I don't like the way that a lot of the software companies tell you to do it because they don't have you break out the grouped losses. I key every loss in individually. And the reason why I do that is I want to see that if there's three met only claims that fall below the threshold of what's grouped and what's not, I want to see that there's three lacerations on somebody's right hand. Because I want to go find out what part of the operation they're working in. Is there a guarding issue? Is the workstation not set up properly? Is it a training issue? Because we know frequency breeds severity, and it's only a
2: matter of time until somebody loses their whole flipping hand. And those sometimes you can pinpoint very easily preventable losses when you go into that kind of level of detail. Yeah, you know, and it, and it's yeah, you know, sometimes it's a it's a training issue, a safety training issue. You can really get at the root cause of what's causing those losses. And, and you're right, David. Very few agents know how to lead that conversation. And likely that's a conversation that CFO has never had with his agent.
1: No, and it's crazy. You know, people ask me all the time, how are you able to produce business easily in the middle market? Well, you know, it's it's simple. People either look at me like they've never had the conversation before and they buy into what I say, or they look at me like I have an eyeball in the middle of my <laughs> forehead and I'm absolutely nuts. If that's how they look at me, then they're probably not going to be can't a good, help client. You yeah, can't help be a good client for me anyhow. No. But, you know, to your point of what you said earlier, Again, I think it goes back also to insurance agents, by and large, are viewed as salespeople. They're not viewed as trusted advisors. They're selling a product, they're not solving a problem. And I open every one of the meetings that I have with somebody with, listen, I understand what my industry reputation is. If you've noticed, my company name is Florida Risk Partners. Insurance is nowhere in the name of my company, and that's by design. We view insurance as a commoditized shuffling of paperwork. We're really here to talk to you about what's ultimately driving the total cost of risk in your organization. Certainly premiums are part of that, but there's so much more that we need to talk about today. And then we begin to dive into those things and the mod is certainly one of them, but the other one that nobody ever talks about, which by the way, guys, you're getting pure gold right now. If you're an agent (laughs) listening to this, you are getting pure gold and you have a choice. You can either listen to what I'm telling you and go try and implement it, or you can ignore it. And guys like me are going to still run over you like a truck when you were in the marketplace. But the bottom line is they don't talk about total cost of risk. And there's a there's a um, I want to say it, it, it's the, the statistic is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that the indirect costs of any claim across yeah. general industry is anywhere between two and 20 times the direct cost yeah. of yeah, a claim. the hidden
2: costs of you know the administrative costs, the lost time, you know, uh, People who need, you know, the witnesses who need to fill out, you know, all the paperwork involved, everything that goes along with all those hidden costs when it's just not the dollar amounts that are paid out of the insurance, but it's a disruption to the operation when there's a claim in an operation. And I've seen this as a producer myself when there have been major claims, whether it was a major injury or uh, an auto accident or a fire or whatever, you know. You're, we're in this shutdown phase, but that temporarily, normally when there's a major claim, it shuts down the business for a period of time. Or or even worse is a lawsuit that stretches out and distracts and takes away the focus of the business for years.
1: Listen, we could do a whole podcast for an hour time and just continuously name off yeah. indirect costs, overtime, yeah. cost to retrain and rehire, uh, recruiting costs. I mean, like you could go in... Or if you're in manufacturing, God forbid, somebody gets their hand stuck in a piece of equipment. You have to shut that whole work center down. Oh, yeah. oh, What's yeah. how much how much does that cost you? But you know, it's interesting because the average CFO does not buy that statistic, right? Because nobody has ever talked to them about that before. So when we go in and we lay out a case for them about here's here's what your you know your loss runs look like, here's where your experience spot is. But it's really important for you to understand that the indirect costs that you have associated with, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, are anywhere between two and 20 times the direct cost of the claim. And inevitably, they're going to look at their claims and they're going to say, well, I had you know, $500,000 worth of claims this year. You're telling me that my indirect costs are a million dollars? I would certainly notice if a million dollars was leaving my financial uh, statements. And I said, well, that's what the Bureau of Labor Statistics says, and it should be relatively credible. It's across general industry. And we chose the number two because we didn't think you'd believe twenty. So we, yeah. you know, well, there's no way that we. Well, let me let me rephrase this. What's your the argument you're trying to get me to believe is that you're so bad in workers comp that your experience mod's a two point two, but you're best in class at containing the soft costs. <laughs> that's yeah. what you're asking that, me to accept.
2: That just doesn't make any logical sense if someone gives you that kind of response because you know that's not true. Yeah, you know, that,
1: that's the moment every time. Yeah. I get I get to that place when I go into a new business appointment, I get to that point as quickly as I can because I yeah. know I know at that point that if they hear that and they listen to what I say and I come back with that exact argument that I just made that the light bulb goes off and the rest of the conversation I have them as a captive audience.
2: No. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's you know, I think it's a case of you know where maybe going beyond the marketing and prospecting part but it's you know this whole qualification and getting the the Potential client to, I guess, open their eyes to what's reality. I think that's a big part of it. And the, and you mentioned it, David, the faster you can get them to that point, the quicker you can get the broker record letter and move on to start to serve that client instead of just dancing around all the other stuff that we do as agents to, you know, do quotes and, and, you know, jam up your staff, jam up your carriers. You know, that just doesn't make any sense to be operating your business like that. You want to be able to get in there and help your client and make a difference for your client as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean the thing is you you have to get to that point early in the conversation, but you know, if you listen to what I've said And if you were in any uh, new business appointment, number one, I follow pretty much the same script almost every time. It may be some different questions here or there, but you know, at the end of the day, you haven't heard me say a word about insurance or premium.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's not about that.
1: Not at all. So we go in and we talk about here's your mod, here's your mod analysis. This is the diagnosis. Let's talk about the treatment plan. Let's talk about light duty. Looks to me like you've got some back injuries. We need to come in and retrain your staff on manual material handling. You know, we might have some guarding issues. Looks like a couple of people had something get in their eye. Let's talk about personal protective equipment, get into all of the things that could be driving those costs. And then when we get to the when we get to that point, I'm typically past 30 minutes, usually 45 minutes in before I ever mention insurance. And the conversation comes, look, I know that we've talked about this. Can you agree with me that this makes sense? And I get them to buy into that. Can you agree with me that your company needs to take action on these things? Can you agree with me that I would be the right person to do that for you? And then I say, listen, you're probably wondering how much I'm going to charge you for doing this. And I wanted to let you know, what if I told you that you are going to be able to use money that you're already spending And we're going to be able to do all of this inside of the budget you already have. See, I learned a long time ago that I can't come in and lay out my value proposition and then give you another expense on your income statement. I know that that's not going to work for me, but what I can do is I can take your insurance transaction, which we have already established is viewed as a commoditized shuffling of paperwork. We view that as the funding mechanism to really buy our value proposition. We're going to show you how you can take money you've already been spending, just reallocate it to a different firm. We'll go ahead and handle the insurance placement and do that. That's the easy part. And you're actually buying everything I've spent the last 45 minutes talking to you about.
2: Right. Yeah. It's like taking candy from a baby. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it is surprising that there are not more uh, agents doing that. And I think it, you know, to make you know, maybe to circle back on the whole prospecting marketing part of it is, you know, a lot of the, you know, you were just saying it, David, a lot of the conversation is it has nothing to do with insurance. And I think that's a big mistake people make in their online presence, their digital presence. They focus on having insurance content. I think there needs to be more of a focus on business problem business challenge content because you know clients aren't sitting around thinking about insurance problems until it is an insurance problem but they face business problems each and every day whether it's training their staff keeping their staff motivated being productive you know following those safety guidelines you know all those are its cash flow and all you know, right now certainly is king. And I think you need to talk about the things that are on the minds of your p- potential clients or your clients, the things that they struggle with, and then put them into a, an insurance or a risk management perspective. That's what they're looking for. That's when you're really adding some value to them instead of, you know, monkeys can do insurance quotes, you know, but to add some real value, you need to talk about the same stuff that their attorney or their CPA is going to have their com- the same conversations with them about. And those are business related problems.
1: You know, I think that a lot of times people just, they overcomplicate what we do, right? I mean, oh, they, yeah. it or they're so focused <laughs> on, on getting to the sale that they completely miss everything else in the process. And, you know, Listen, I've never had a problem getting a business owner to open up and tell me their story. No. Most bis- most business owners really like to talk they about love their business. Doing that.
2: If you ask them, "Hey, tell me about your business. Tell me about how you, you know, you, you kind of look around and you say, "Man, you you just really have a fascinating operation here. I love what you're doing here. You know, it looks like people are productive. You know, tell me how you put this whole thing together." You know, they're often running for a half an hour or an hour on that conversation, and you can't stop them. Yeah, nine times
1: out of ten, I I can I, I begin talking to them about you know what I really like your branding. Tell yeah. me how you got to this and how, tell me how you got to where you're at in your marketing. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Or if they're not doing something and I think I have a good idea, I will gently mention, hey, you know, have you ever thought about doing something like this? I think this would play really well. If you go in and you talk to somebody about their business and let them tell you. How proud they are of it. And you actually show a genuine interest in showing them a way to help grow their top line, in addition to asking them, for, I mean, as opposed to asking them for money to buy from you, you're going to win them over very, very early.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of one of the criteria of being a great producer. You need to be curious and fascinated about businesses, about how they work and, and their stories. You, know, you really have to have that because if not, you're just, you're just a transactional guy. Uh, you know, if you're not really passionate about learning about business and helping those businesses, what what are you really doing?
1: Yeah, well, and my thing is, there is zero excuse for not being able to do that. There's none. Yeah. It, that that goes back to what you said originally: purely lazy. You know, I wish I I still come from the era. I'm not, you know, I'm not ancient, but the internet was pretty much evolving as I went to college. So I didn't have the internet at my fingertips. And in my first real outside sales job, we had the Kohl's directory, but it was like the actual (laughs) leather bound directory, you know? And so I, it wasn't in insurance, it was in a different industry, but. I actually went out and I used that and I created a sales system around the information that was given to me. Today, if you can't find common ground with a prospect within a minute, if not even less, you have done zero research before you've walked in because these people's lives are on display for you all over the place. Yeah, you just have to be willing to look for it.
2: There's so much information and and, and I know you said it in your 2-minute book. You, know, you you need to be willing to do the research on your potential clients. And and I think few people do that to really dig in and find out, you know, and that information is out there. It's online. It's whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on YouTube, it, it's somewhere online where you can get insights onto, you know, what's happening in that business? What are the people behind the business? What are they about? So you can really dig into that. And there's really no reason any longer to make a cold call. You know, those days are over. If you're just, you know, blindly calling people, hoping that you can land a meeting, you're doing it wrong. Completely
1: Uh, wrong. And, you know, the thing is, I think it's a dangerous, it's a slippery slope that you get into when you start doing the level of research that I do. I'm I'm good with what I do because I understand how to use that information. What you don't do is a myriad of research and then walk in and vomit all of that information out yeah. when you walk in the meeting because you are no longer a producer. You have become a stalker, yeah. you know, and I, and you yeah. have to be careful the more you know about something, the, the really you have to be very guarded. It, it's good to have that information, but you have to mentally prepare yourself to not walk into the meeting With preconceived notions based off of what you found online. Use that information to formulate questions that will either confirm or disavow what your supposition is walking in, but don't walk in with already, you know, pre-made assumptions (laughs) as to what you're going to expect. But I think a lot of people do that because I hear it all the time. People say, you know, it's really refreshing. You didn't walk in here and tell me what I needed. You actually listened to what's going on in my business and how it runs and everything else. The last three guys I talked to came in and told me that I was in trouble. My workers comp was, you know, screwed and they had the right, the right policy and the carrier and everything else. They said, how are you going to solve that problem? I said, I really don't view that as a problem. Your your problem, your problem is not the placement of insurance. There's always a place to put that. Your your problem is all of the things that are leading to the fact that we had to have this conversation to begin with.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's a great point is you, you can't, you have to be able to put it into some, the research has to be put into, uh, into context, into part of building that relationship so that that potential client can hear the message of what you're saying. And, and they hear the message when they say it. It's not you saying it. You need to have the right questions, the right insightful questions, so that it's their idea, not your idea, where they come to the conclusion to say, oh, man, I've been doing this completely backwards all these years, and you've opened my eyes to this, and this just makes so much sense to to change the way I'm handling this, because ultimately, you know, any insurance transaction or changing a client, we're talking about moving someone from the status quo. We're, we're asking them to make a change. And so for, you can't force someone to make a change. They have to internalize making that change for their own benefit.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. So I want to talk about LinkedIn because that's okay. where we, that's where we met.
2: Yeah,
1: all good stuff. So you know what you, it, it's interesting. So again, if there's if I were to give myself a pat on the back for any one thing that I'm really good at, it's recognizing an opportunity and seizing it when it presents itself in front of me initially. I make a lot of mistakes. You know, there's not I'm not saying that everything I touch turns to gold. It's it's it couldn't be further from the truth. But I I'm quick to move. I'm also quick to cut bait and course correct if I feel like the decision I've made is not a good one. But I was a really, really early adopter of LinkedIn. I remember being on LinkedIn. I mean, and it's probably not as old as what LinkedIn itself is. But, you know, back in, I want to say it was 04, 05. Yeah, Early 2000s. Yeah. yeah, 04, 05, LinkedIn comes onto the scene. And I see what it's, what, you know, at least it became more mainstream at that point. Um, and, and I saw that and I'm like, you know what? This is a tool. This is going to be something at some point that a lot of people are going to jump on, and I was really, really active in it. And then I got unactive in it for a little while, which was a, a huge mistake. And I'm more active now than I have been in a long time. But you know, I think it is a it, it's a great platform. But like any other platform, it's like I always say: it's never the process; it's always the person. Mm-hmm. The platform is outstanding. How the person chooses to execute on that platform makes all the difference in the world.
2: Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah, and and you're right. It, it has changed a lot since the early 2000s. I was on it early on, and didn't do very much with it because it it was primarily just a recruiting tool for a lot of people, where people threw up their resumes, and you know the recruiters jumped on it. But since Microsoft bought LinkedIn is really when it's changed the focus on it. Yeah, it's still a big tool for recruiters and job seekers, but it's opened up a whole avenue for people to use it as a platform to build relationships, whether it's with potential clients, existing clients, strategic partners. It's the biggest B2B platform. network out there. And it's basically a big CRM that's updated in real time by people adding information, whether it's information on their profiles, job changes, uh posting content, whatever. It, and it's free is the other thing that's that's the good part of it. And it gives you opportunities to do a number of different things. You you basically have the profile, which is your I guess sales page landing page is a way to view that where you're you're making it client focus client based and then you have the ability to create content on an ongoing basis whether that's video text or long form uh articles. And plus you have the ability to direct message people and you can direct message people with video, audio, or text. And so you ha- it's a great relationship building platform. And I think the thing that people get confused on LinkedIn is they view it as a broadcast platform and just to blow out messages. It doesn't work to do that because there's just too much noise online to do that anymore. But if you're using it as a relationship building platform to To establish credibility, authority, and then start to build relationships with people through what you're posting and how you're messaging people. And you're pulling that into your, let's say, drop-in visits, emails, phone calls. It's just another touch to position you with that potential client or a strategic partner.
1: No, I agree. And I mean, I think it's important because so many people, we're, we're all fighting an uphill battle with LinkedIn, Unfortunately, with all of the automated bots and everything yeah. else that are out there now, I am notorious for just sawing somebody off at the knees. If they if, if they request to connect with me and the next thing I get is a, hey, David R., thanks for requesting to connect with <laughs> yeah. me, blah, blah, blah. You know, nobody calls me David R. except for my mother, right? You yeah. know, first name, middle initial, but that's what's on my profile because my father's David E. Yeah. So, we're both in the insurance industry. So I have, you know, I put my middle initial in there. I know it's automated at that point. Yeah. Like I've literally just accepted a connection with you in 30 seconds in, you're telling me all the reasons why you can help yeah. my business. You know, nothing about me, you know, nothing about my business. And it's it funny because, you know, I have people like this week, I've had a couple people come out and say, Hey, um, you know, just wondering if you need help with your social media marketing. I studied your profile. It's very uh, impressive, blah, 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 blah. I write back, I'm like, you didn't study it thoroughly enough. If you did, you'd see that I own a marketing company, you know? No. So what what are you offering me? What, what How are you really going to help me? And I think that we really need to be focused in our message. And one of the best ways that I have found, and I'm interested in your experience with this as well, one of the best ways I have found to get past that and show, instant credibility with somebody that you're trying to talk to or that you'd like to connect with in a non-salesy way, you know, whether it be a prospect or otherwise is I'll send them a quick message, not five seconds after we connect, but at some point I'll I'll send them the message and I'll immediately follow up with a LinkedIn voice message so that they realize this is a real person. They're not an automated bot. I probably can take this a little more seriously than I would otherwise. That has worked wonders for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Again, to to think about this, if you're a middle market producer, how many freaking prospects do you need in your pipeline? Realistically, you don't need thousands of them. You need a couple hundred of the right prospects. You, you need to be more focused on who you're building relationships with within your your pipeline instead of just spraying and praying out to a thousand different or 2000 different people. And, and so if, if you have that mindset, you're saying, well, geez, if I'm trying to build relationships with a hundred, 150, 200 people, why would I even think about using some type of automated bot? That just doesn't even make any sense at all. And, and, I, I think you made a great point. If you can personalize in an audio message, a video message, I think that goes a long way because there's no denying that then that is a personalized message. The other thing to look at as far as messaging, I view LinkedIn messaging almost like texting. You know, you're it's not where you're doing formal, you know, sentences and paragraphs and a formal interaction, but you're trying to get people to converse. On the LinkedIn platform, which ultimately leads to say, you know, geez, we've been going back and forth here on LinkedIn. Why don't we just hop on a call and, and see if, you know, what we're all about and see if we're a fit to work together. It just becomes a natural progression at that point. And people are used to texting on the phone. Uh, and, and a lot of times, you know, people, they're there. You looked at LinkedIn, usually on your mobile phone, you're not going to look at a long message, a long email message. It's that quick back and forth. That's what you want to try to get to. You're trying to get the back and forth interaction where people are engaged, and then you can take the conversation off of LinkedIn. That's the goal of what you want to do.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with that completely. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I think again, to your point about broadcasting, I, I have a friend that, that is heavily involved in, in social marketing. And his, his comment was, it's like, you're shouting, right? You're no. shouting at your audience, you're screaming at them what you want them to hear. You're not paying attention to what they, what they want to receive. And it's interesting to me. I mean, as I'm sure you figured out, I'm a huge fan of video. Yeah. I'm, a huge, I'm a huge fan of video because it makes me a person. You know, yeah. people, it, it blows my mind. I, I, I get approached by people when I go to different industry conferences and they're like, hey, man, how's it going? And I'm like, I don't have a It's like they is, know you. Yeah. Who this person is. And, <laughs> and they're like, I feel like I've known you forever. And, da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it's it's a really cool phenomenon and it works. You know, we try in our agency, we try to leverage video as much as humanly possible because a lot of the time, even with a service a, a service person, My client may never meet that person face to face, but they're talking to them on the phone all the time. So when we onboard a new client, I want to get a video of the client concierge that is assigned to that account in front of that new new client as quickly as possible so they can see a name and associate a name and a face and a voice, and it makes it a personal relationship. And I think so many times in the digital age, we're focused on just boom, boom, boom. Everything's you know yeah. done on online or on the computer. That we're not slowing down and realizing we've been given tools to create a personal relationship on a digital platform.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's you know you made a point about the you know, the broadcasting. I think if you you get in broadcast mode. And we talked about this a little bit earlier about being able to position as that authority on the same level as a CPA or the attorney. But if you start, if your mode is to broadcast, you kind of destroy that positioning as an authority. You look desperate and because the CPA that's advising people or attorneys, they're not broadcasting crap out to their audience. They just aren't doing that. And so why would you do that? If you want to be a trusted advisor to your clients, it's the wrong positioning. It's the same as just picking up the phone book and cold calling people. It's just the wrong positioning for what, for the relationship you're trying to have with that particular client. And uh, yeah, and I think video is a great way to make it, make the people that are interacting with that client, you know, because we do business with people. We don't do business with businesses. You want to make that connection on a personal level as much as possible, because then it becomes real. And there's a relationship there. There's a bond there that, uh, you know, especially now, since we we haven't been able to do uh, face-to-face, it's even more important than ever. And I think it's going to continue because I think, more and more people are realizing, hey, it's a comfortable way to do business. It's an inexpensive and a time-saving way to do business instead of driving across town and blowing an hour each way to meet with a client. You know, and I know you said it before, I think in one of your podcasts, you give them their the list of recommendations or the next steps or whatever in a video, they can view it on their own time frame, whenever they want, instead of interrupting and scheduling a separate meeting right in the middle of their business day when they're busy doing their business. And maybe they don't want to meet with their insurance guy that. So, well,
1: you know, I think part of it too is it's a change of mindset for us, right? I'm still somewhat old school in that. I want to go wear a suit and tie and meet yeah. somebody in their conference room and shake their hand when I ask for their money. That's not the way that the generation that's coming through the ranks now thinks. And right. we need to transform the way we think to deliver the message to people the way they wish to receive it, not how we perceive they need to hear it from us. Yeah. And we, so we've been doing video proposals for insurance for two or three years now. Yeah. It, we, we We had to make zero adjustments when COVID hit because we've already been doing that. I've sold deals at two o'clock in the morning because I sent a video proposal and somebody clicked the button that said I want to go ahead and request to bind this proposal
2: on a on a couple hundred thousand dollar deal. You See, know, I, and it's, I, that's just so cool to be able to do that. To me, that's it, that's a neat way to do business because it's just so time efficient for both you and for the client. It's huge. They can they can
1: take the time to focus. On what it is, they can select that they yeah. know it's sitting in there inbox, but they don't feel pressured to watch the whole video right now. Ah, let me go home, get my shoes off, grab a cup of coffee, whatever. Sit down, watch this thing when I have time to really concentrate on what they're saying. And I mean, it's it's a huge advantage if you're already in that arena. You know, it's interesting because the other thing that um that that you mentioned is just sort of getting up and grandstanding. I don't remember the exact word you used, but I have been a very open critic of how a lot of people have used LinkedIn and any other platform for that matter during COVID to just spout off COVID information continuously. And it's like, you guys are missing a massive opportunity. You're spending all your time to try and look like a thought leader on something that people who have gone to medical school don't even really yeah. fully understand or can get their arms around instead of stepping back and saying, what are the problems that I solve all the time that I can generate more content around that are gonna, that is going to pay dividends for me for years into the future as opposed to something that hopefully will be irrelevant in several months because nobody's going to care anymore. Nobody's going to care about that. And it's interesting. The only thing that I have had anything, I've said a couple of things in videos regarding what I think agencies should be looking at during COVID from a content production standpoint and everything else. The only thing that we did surrounding COVID is when I heard that they were going to do the payroll protection program loans, I literally sat up in bed. And I said, I've got to make this happen for my clients and I've got to make it available for my prospects. And I got to the office. I called the CEO of a local uh, community bank that I'm friends with. And I said, I need you and a couple of your SBA lenders on a webinar in a day and a half. And we're going to do it at Wednesday or Thursday at two o'clock because I need them to answer questions. I want all of my clients to get on there and be able to get their questions answered. I'm going to bring some prospects on. I'm not asking for anything out of it. I'll give you the platform. I'll populate it. All I need you guys to do is come on and be the subject matter experts to be able to answer questions. We conducted the webinar. It was a huge win. The pe- My yeah. clients that were on there ended up getting their loans processed through my friend's bank in an extremely efficient manner. The bank picked up millions of dollars worth of receipts, because of deposits right. rather, because these people moved their accounts based on how nimbly they handled the PPP program. And you know what? I got credibility. I got credibility because I wasn't selfish. I found people who needed money and I found the people who had the money and all I did was connect the two of them. We recorded the webinar. We created a landing page. We put some display and search ads around it. We drove traffic to that. We gained all kinds of registrations for people who watched it after the fact. And guess what? My CRM blew up. My HubSpot is full of leads that came through that program, right? And, you know, that's the only thing we did, but it was because we truly were meeting a need that was immediate for anybody who had that need. And it wasn't about just standing up, beating our chest, saying, hey, I'm Captain COVID, and I'm here with your daily announcement.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, it's the idea of solving that bleeding neck problem. And that, you know, for these businesses, that was a bleeding neck problem. And uh, you use the platform for what it was intended to do to bring relationships together and and help to solve a problem Uh, rather than going back where a lot of people are just they're in that broadcast mode, just adding to the noise. You know, regurgitating all this COVID stuff, whether it's from a carrier, whether it's from Zive Wave that they put something together or whatever. And it's just, it, it, I think people are just brain dead to it. I know I am. I don't even want to see it anymore. You know, it's, no, so, I mean
1: I, you hear about it on the news, the radio, everywhere you, know, you turn. I ignore to- it,
2: you know, because there's so much misinformation. I don't know what in the hell's true or not.
1: Yeah, you go to LinkedIn. That's the last thing I want to say. I've already heard it all morning before I got to work to (laughs) to jump on. So let me ask you this. If you're going to engage with somebody and they're not familiar with LinkedIn, what are the top three tips that you would give them for a LinkedIn newbie or for somebody who maybe thinks they're using it right and they're not? What are three things anybody can do to set themselves on the right course?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, first of all, you really need to think about, and I know you've talked about this, you really need to think about who your target clients are, your perfect fit clients. Who you're, are you really trying to do business with? Who are those people that you want to build your book of business around? Because if you're just a generalist, you're just not going to get traction on LinkedIn. Your message is going to be that same general message that everyone else is saying. Uh, so I think you really need to plant your flag in a target market. Doesn't mean that you can't write business in other markets, but your your focus, your positioning needs to be in a target market. You need to commit to that, uh, and then from there, you need to build your your profile around that target market to make it client facing towards that market, uh, towards their problems giving a little bit of a hint as to your solutions, your process. You can't give them the whole story. You want them to be curious enough that they are willing and want to talk to you. You don't give them the whole, you know, we talked about this earlier about, you know, you just don't throw up everything that you know, uh, but you want to make them curious enough that they they seek you out. And then finally, you know, if you're, whether you're engaging on messaging or you're doing posts, make it original, make it unique, make it personal. Don't just share links out, add some insights, you know, make it something that's of value to your potential clients or to those potential prospects that you're communicating with one-on-one. There's just the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it takes some more work to do that, but that's where the payoff is.
1: Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to give you my three. And now people are going to have six points because my three are completely different than Walt's. And I'm not saying his are wrong and mine are right or vice versa, because there's there are so many things that need to be done. Right. So my first one is make sure your profile is complete. Make sure you have a good profile that states exactly what you do, what problem you solve, whatever it is. Because what I can promise you is whether you realize this or not, people are looking at your profile And they're doing that before they pick up the phone to call you or send you an email to engage with you.
2: Everyone's going to check out the, you know, if you get introduced to anyone nowadays, you call them, you meet them at a a meeting, you get referred into them. Everyone is going to do a search on you and your LinkedIn profile is going to pop up and search. And it's
1: embarrassing if you get on there and you've got no profile picture. You, know, yeah. you have the, the grayed out profile picture <laughs> and your job history doesn't really lend any credibility to what you're doing now or whatever else. So
2: that's number one. Well, no. I, I'm going to just make a point in that is if, you're, if your profile isn't up to, up to speed and people are searching on, on your profile to figure out whether they want to do business with you, you really have no idea how many opportunities you're truly missing. You you just don't know. You have business that's slipping out of your hands every single day if your profile isn't up to speed. That's how important it is. Yeah, and I would
1: also argue the fact that, um, well, I just lost my train of thought.
2: Was it that mine was so good or what?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I completely spaced there for a second. It'll come back to me in a minute. But- yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Oh, I know what it was. There's no excuse. Yeah. On on LinkedIn, there's no excuse because they give you a progress bar that tells you how, what percentage to being a great link, they rate you, they superstar, whatever it is, strive to get it complete based on how they set it, how they uh, have everything, uh, you know, rated for you. The second one is the second one I would say is do not over engage with people. Right, don't over engage. That's weird. Like I know who the people are that are in my pipeline that I am sitting back and engaging with on a very selected basis. Mm-hmm. If they post something great about their company, I'm going to give them a comment that lets them know, "Hey, good job! This is awesome. Way to go, team!" Whatever else, and then I'll let it rest. I'm not going to be living on their profile. Every single day, multiple times a day, every time they post something, liking, commenting, whatever else, it's weird. People don't, you know, people are going to wonder who is this guy. And it's not going to be for the right reasons.
2: Yeah, you, yep. you get you end up being the stalker at that point, and that, yeah, that's just creepy. Yeah, yeah. and the, and then
1: <laughs> the third thing that I would tell everybody is share other people's stuff. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of information out there. You don't have to limit it to just what you want to share that is your own. Share other people's things too. You never know. I could share an article that somebody else wrote about a a problem and the person's not even going to realize it was the one who wrote the article. They're like, wow, this guy, you know, thanks for sharing this. I really appreciate it. I got a lot from it. Boom, now you have interaction with somebody. Even though you didn't write it, they commented on it that you helped them and you just you can engage with them at that point and begin the dialogue. So it doesn't always have to be about you and, and your thought process and your stuff. Share other people's things, cultivate information and put it out there. I mean there
2: Yeah, I, I think that's really smart. And especially if it's if it's voices, let's say it's a market, let's say it's contractors that you're working with. You know, there's certain People within that construction business, you know, depending on where they're operating, that they view and they trust those voices, and so why not share information that they're already trusting and uh, reading and probably consuming, but adding your insight? And it takes a minute or two to add your insight to information that they already trust to put it into some type of perspective that leads into how you can help them to solve a problem that you solve.
1: I agree. Well, listen, man, we are popping an hour. I want you to, this is your infomercial. Tell them what you tell them, tell them how they can find you, what you can, what problem you can solve for them. And I want you to be able to uh, have some of the people that listen to what we have to say, reach out to you as a result of this conversation. I think that we've, we've talked about a lot of good stuff, man. I mean, it's, it's been great.
2: So, yeah, uh, certainly you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just do a search under Walt Goshard and, uh, another tip here, uh, my LinkedIn, uh, URL is commercial insurance prospecting. So you don't have to use your own name in your LinkedIn URL. So that's just a freebie tip. Uh, you can have it, uh, a keyword if it's available, uh, and so you can find me on LinkedIn, certainly. Uh, my website is waltgosher.com, first and last name. And that takes you uh, to right to a landing page for a LinkedIn profile scorecard where you can score every element within your LinkedIn profile to see, hey, what's working, what isn't working within your, your LinkedIn profile. And I also do a, a one-on-one service. To help people one on one to beef up their LinkedIn profile. And I call it prospecting playbook. Uh, We'll rewrite. Tear down everything on your profile. We'll, we'll look at the strategy, your messaging, everything there. and we'll also put together a written prospecting playbook to say, okay, now that you have a, a beefed up profile, how do you really make this thing happen? How do you mix in uh, email? How do you mix in phone calls, uh, maybe even direct mail into what your LinkedIn activities are? Because it, it, it's not just LinkedIn alone, it's, and it's part of having a prospecting habit then I think everyone needs to have a prospecting habit and a prospecting process that you, you religiously follow each and every day.
1: I agree. I agree. And I would have been very disappointed if you didn't tell them to find you on LinkedIn first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, Walt, it's been a pleasure, man. I'm glad we finally got to connect. You know, it's funny because I, um, I was telling Ryan Hanley that every morning I wake up and I'll post like a like a uh, thing that I do on Canva or whatever else, you know, they may have a quote or a saying, or it'll be one of our videos on, you know, just a quick couple minutes on sales technique or thought process or whatever else. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, Walt is always the first one to be on there and engage with me. So it's very much appreciated. And so much so that, last week when I was talking to Hanley, I'm like, Hey man, I mean, I know, you know, Walt, is everything okay with him? Cause it was like two or three days in a row and Walt didn't interact with anything that I posted. And I was wondering if something was wrong. So. Yeah.
2: That's, I was, I was doing a series of uh, workshops with the Institute of work comp professionals and just really tied up with that. And I did, you know, it's funny you, you, I've hopped on this uh, call with you. I, I did a call with Michael Jans. I did a, uh, a panel discussion with uh, with Ryan and Billy Williams, Charles Specht, and Mick Hunt. Uh, and so all of a sudden, I'm getting all these requests to be on podcasts or video uh, things. And it's been good you know, because it helps to spread the word out there. So yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't believe that LinkedIn engagement works, that is 100% the reason that I had my guest on here today. He reached out to me originally to connect. We connected. He's engaged with my content. And I wanted to hear more about what he does. But, if that's the result you want, you need to call this guy and have him help you if you're not getting those results right now. Walt, it's been awesome having you I, on, man. I,
2: I want to really- say one last word sure. uh, and a plug for you. Grab grab David's two-minute book. You know, it, it's, just, it's a quick read, but there's great insights in that book. And it, and it and it really reflects on a lot of the topics that we talked about here today. And uh, every producer needs to read through that book.
1: Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And it's a uh, it's humbling to know that you read it before we got on here. Because guess what? I'm the author and I don't even have a copy yet. <laughs> Everybody else is getting them before yeah. I've gotten mine. So it, it's good to hear who's
2: read it. I'm a Kindle guy. I, I just, uh, I'm trying to get rid of all this stuff behind me. I hear you. I I keep donating books to the local library and uh, trying to make everything on Kindle so that when I travel, it's with me. So, There you go. Walt, I
1: hope you have a good rest of the week, man. Thanks again for coming on. Everybody, reach out to Walt if you need help on LinkedIn because he's the guy who can help you.
0: You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you wanna take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.